Good evening. Uh, those of you that were with us last night at our uh, 10th annual conference with featuring Rabbi Shalom Karmi uh, were entitled to the, the full uh, introduction. But tonight I'll just give the short version. We're very pleased that Rabbi Shalom Karmi uh, of Yeshiva University in New York is spent this week with us at Atid, uh, Rabbi Bravner's institution, as our scholar in residence, uh, teaching and mentoring and tutoring uh, our Atid fellows, the young teachers that come to our program and working with us uh, on some of the initiatives that we've undertaken at Atid. Uh, Rabbi Karmi is a professor of Tanakh and Jewish thought and philosophy at Yeshiva College and Stern College for Women. He is also the editor of the journal Tradition and the author of some very many important and seminal essays that are on the agenda of people, uh, people of us, that are concerned with the, the weighty issues facing Jewish life and learning in, in the modern world. I trust, I assume that many of you uh, know Rabbi Karmi from these writings, from these essays, many of which are actually available online on our website at atid.org. You can download uh, some of these essays on an array of issues and challenges and, and, uh, and, and struggles that face the contemporary Jew. Um, and I venture that most of us are familiar uh, with Rabbi Karmi uh, from, uh, from, his, from his writings, if not from his, his actual uh, classroom teaching. Um, and tonight we have the the benefit to get to know Rabbi Karmi through the actual live Torah learning tonight, Harshat B'Shalach. I want to do today's start from one pasuk in Parsha and one note in uh, Parsha, Rashi, Ban, which officially does not look like an explosive uh, debate. I hope by the end of our discussion we'll realize that starting from that narrow point there are larger implications and there's some interesting ideas that can be developed. I mean, that immediately appear to be on the surface. The phrase I want to focus on, what does that mean? Says Rashi, Norati Yilot, Yarui Nilahagit Yilotav Pen Yimachu. In other words, we fear to speak God's praise because we fear falling short, we feel being inadequate. The gesture of praise towards God inspires us with fear because of our limitations. And as she says, there's another person that supports me. Silence for you is praise. means, according to Rashi, both here and Rashi and Tillim, 
that the proper praise of God is silence because he attempts to verbalize will fall short. <coughs> so according to Rashi, there are two things that we learn here. One is that there is a fear of speaking God's praises lest we fall short. One important lesson, philosophical lesson. Then there's a second lesson that this idea is actually found in this pasuk. There are many, many ideas that are correct and they're not found in a particular pasuk. So, uh, you know, one issue is philosophical, the other is really the exegetical one that the pasuk is actually saying what Rashi wants to say. Come to the Ramban. Ramban, after quoting Rashi, third line in the uh, handouts, Ulfidati, Kitam Lorati Lot Shunura Bati Lot, Kia said Varim Noraim Mithalel Bahem, Shasan Kamot Vir Sunogo Shia Bahemet Abadav, Inehu Bazeno Ra Umihual Noor. Ramban says, differently from Rashi, God is no Rati Lot, God does awesome things or terrible things that inspire people to praise him. So according to, that, to Ramban, the Pasuk is not saying that the true praise of God is silence. The Pasuk is saying that it is God's awesomeness, his fearfulness, that leads us to praise. He goes on to say that since other powerful beings, kings and so forth, they are, they do terrible things that are harmful things, but the Rabbana Shalom does things which inspire praise rather than revulsion or fear, terror. The king says Ramban, right in the middle, it's sixth line, Lamban says, if we look at that Pasuk and kill him, since Ramban noticed that Rashi quoted the Pasuk and kill him, and Ramban noticed the Pasuk and kill him turning up somewhere else as well, and we'll come to that in a moment. So Ramban says, if you ask me al-darachapshat, which al-darachapshat means not al-darachadrash. What does the Pasuk mean? I will tell you al-darachapshat l'chadun yatila does not mean what Rashi says it means. L'chadun yatila means that the waiting for God, the expectation of God's intervention is an act of praise. The fact that we have bitachon, the fact that we wait upon him, that is the act of praise. The people who wait upon you, in this they are praising you. What we see now is that there seem to be really three but two differences between 
Rashi and Ramban. One difference of opinion is what does the Pasuk and Shmok actually mean? One difference is what does the Pasuk in Tillim actually mean? Rashi says it means the same, something supporting what he said in Shmok, and Ramban says no, it means something else. This might lead us to a third point, namely that if Ramban disagrees with Rashi on both of these Pesukim, it may very well be that Ramban is not concerned about the whole principle of silence being the proper mode of praising God. I mean, Ramban does not have this aversion to verbalization that seems to come up in Rashi where people are afraid to speak God's praises because they try to speak God's praises they will fall short of the inadequate. And Ramban doesn't seem to have this concern. As Ramban takes the Pesukim of Rashi adduces in that regard and Ramban says, don't bother me. Don't bring it in. There seems to be a disagreement about a, a, a theological principle. It's very important to the nature of prayer, communication with God, and so forth. Is it really possible that, Rashi, that Ramban disagrees with Rashi's principle as far as the general philosophical point of view? Uh, offhand, that seems difficult because the Ramban's, the Rashi's idea, the idea that one should be restrained in praising God lest one fall short, is an idea that seems to appear in other sources as well. Most notably, the Gemara and Megillah. Which is nothing to do with our concern right now. One Shmona essay has been formulated. You cannot add additional praise. Who can speak all the Gvura uh, Hashem? Who can utter all of his praise? You can only speak all of God's Gvura if you can speak all of God's praise. And since we cannot do that, since we're inadequate, we should be restrained in praising God, and the implication is only what we have in Shmona Esrei, and you don't go off on your own and make uh, speeches of encomia uh, to God. It is wrong to do this. What is the meaning of the verse we looked at a moment ago? Rashi and Ramban. The great remedy is silence. 
כי רבי מי אמר, אמרי במערבה, מילה בסלע, משתוקה בצהן. If a word is worth סלע, silence is worth double. What we see in the Gemara is the Gemara does seem to accept a theological principle which is very much the principle we seem to find in Rashi. Silence is important. You say too much, you go beyond the limits. Your words testify to your inadequacy and become almost blasphemous. Moreover, Uh, we go back and the Gemara seems to be talking about two psukim that are relevant here. One pasuk is the Chadim Yatila, the pasuk that Rashi quoted and which Ramban chose to interpret differently. Rashi fits the Gemara, but Ramban says no. And then another pasuk that comes into play, which according to the Gemara, establishing that same principle of restraint in speech. That pasuk, Rashi could easily learn the way the Gemara does. It certainly fits Rashi very well. What about Ramban? Ramban took the pasuk of Chadim and said, I don't interpret like Rashi. He took the pasuk and he said, I don't interpret like Rashi. Can Ramban interpret differently than Rashi? If he can, I don't see how. He doesn't do it. And I don't easily imagine how you go about doing it. So meanwhile, Rashi seems to be strong here, and Ramban seems to be uh, not so strong. And, uh, And this pasuk. You tell me that Ramban didn't know the pasuk. Ramban, Ramban knows the pasuk. He quoted it uh, earlier. He quoted me and Malal Borotishnas. He knew the pasuk, and even if you think he didn't know the pasuk, Ramban knew the Gemara. So yeah, he knew where where all this is coming from. He knew where it was. From. But you know, the Gemara seems to fit Rashi very well. Uh, regarding the Pasuk Chadum I will prove to you that the Ramban actually knew the Gemara, if you had any doubts. Go back to the Ramban, that middle line, where he quotes the Pasuk, he says, Ramban says that because Ramban knows that there is something else, which we call it Ar-Hadash. Ramban is not saying, I'm, I reject the Gemara. Ramban is saying, you know, I'm writing Pshat, and the Gemara, if you ask me, what about the Gemara? I'll say the Gemara is Hadash. Ramban is very careful in his language. Uh, usually, when you use the phrase Ar-Hadash, it's an acknowledgement that there's a legitimate alternative interpretation, which is not Ar-Hadash. In fact, he's telling me, don't ask me that Rashi quotes, that Rashi fits Gemara. I'm telling you, or that Chapshat said me.
Another Gemara that seems to fit the theological principle pronunciating Rashi. Man was gathering before the Amut. Amar, Akel, Hagadol, Hagibor, Hanura, Vadir, Vaizuz, Vayeruya, Chasak, Vamitz, Vadai, Vanichbad. In Timo Adesiyem, Bechanina waited very patiently until this man did everything he wanted to say. He see a mamarle, see him the chulish, rachi gemarach. Are you finished? You said you have no more to say? Or the movie version, the chanina, here's the thesaurus, there's some more words in the thesaurus you missed. See him tinu kuli, shvachi gemarach. Lovely Kuli, what do I need this for? Anan Hani Rinan, we have three epithets, Akela Gadola Gibarba Hanora, Ilav Damrinu Moshrabenu Bauraita, it's not for the fact that Moshe in Sikhirdvarim used those three epithets. Viat one Shiknasadola Takinu Bitfila. Moshe said it, and Ashkasadola adopted it. Normatively, even those three we would not say were it not that we had the precedent that allows us to start. <laughs> You're going off this way? And a person who, a king, uh, very wealthy in gold, and you praise him for having silver. A person of enormous accomplishments, and you praise him for something relatively minor. <coughs> Man who wins a landslide election in the President of the United States, and you want to introduce him by saying, uh, Oh, this man is the former mayor of uh, Buffalo. Imagine if somebody had uh, introduced President Johnson after his great victory in 1964 as landslide Lyndon with one election to Texas Senate to Senate to, by 86 votes. It's an insult. How do you praise God for? How do you praise a king? With silver, when he actually has gold. And in them show, you come to praise God, who is infinite. There's no end. You'll pinu malay shirakayam, shirin the gnakamangalab, say nishmat. The infinite range of praise. And you come in, if you say kalabhunura, that, that's the set. Nusach, that's the formula, that's what you're supposed to say. But if you're coming up with your own, and you're ambling through Fusaurus, and you feel that by doing this you've gone beyond the actual mitzvah of 
You say that, that is really an insult to Again, this Gemara seems very much to support the outlook we found in Rashi. We got that outlook, and we have according to Rashi, which we said to Rambam with regard that as And we got near a little word of Hashem, which we don't know what the Rambam would do with. This overall approach of Rashi is one that is very much identified with the Rambam. Walk up to people in the street, you would ask them, uh, what does Rashi hold about the subject? I don't know many people would know this. People don't necessarily sit around reading Tillin with Rashi. And the Paschal Chomish, people don't necessarily pay attention that so many so can Shalach, they don't pay attention that Rashi here is making a, a philosophical statement. They might ignore it. The Rambam, you know, everybody in the street knows what the Rambam holds on the subject. Uh, as you know, the Rambam had this outlook about negative language regarding God. You cannot say anything positive about God. You say God is wise. It doesn't really mean he's wise. It means he's not ignorant in any way. Because you can't use the same term wisdom, but God you would use about a human being. If you're doing that, you're, you're falling short. You're claiming to know God in a way that you don't know God. So all the statements of God being wise and powerful and, and steadfast and so forth, these are all negative statements. They're negations of God not being that. And this clearly, for the Rambam, mandates restraint in language. Uh, all the philosophers say we're dazzled by his beauty and he is hidden from us because of the intensity with which he becomes manifest as the sun is hidden to eyes that are too weak to apprehend it. This has been expatiated upon words which serve no useful purpose to repeat here. The most apt phrase concerning the subject is a dictum in Psalm 65, silence is praise to thee which interpreted signifies silence in regard to his praise. We want to praise God, silence is the best form of praise. And the Ramam goes on and uses another plus that can kill him. So we now have another plus that we need another one. Uh, from Tillin Perkdalid, Keep silent and keep it on your bed and be silent. Uh, what would the Ramban do? Well, that Pasuk, not too difficult. The Ramban would say this Pasuk has nothing at all to do with prayer, it has to do with wicked people, and the wicked people, the Psalmist is telling the wicked people, keep quiet. Restrain yourselves. Even the Radak, you know, usually when you, the Radak is very loyal to the Rambam. So usually if you're too lazy to memorize Monavuchim, you want to know how did the Rambam learn the Pasuk, you look at the Radak, the Radak very often will quote the Rambam in the Mola. 
here in Tilman Pedagal Lidradak ignores Ramam's position. Because it's, it's really not shot in the Pasuk, so Tradak ignored it, Ramban can ignore it also, and we can ignore it for our discussion. But Ramam is taking a very clear the position later on in the chapter, I mean, I, I uh, want to zero to for you the Pasuk in Tilman, but later on in the chapter, the Ramam quotes the Gemara and Brachot as being the strong support to the approach of the We come back to the question that I want to pursue. The minor question, how, what does he do with Neil and Gurut Hashem, which really does imply restraint in speaking about God? Uh, there's a problem in trying to speak God's praises when you can't do the whole thing, and we all know that you can't do the whole thing. And we're going to question, why is it that Ramban doesn't seem to be bothered the way Rashi is, the way the Rambam is, uh, with, at an essential level, with the feeling of total inadequacy in, in using verbalization. Uh, let me step back and talk about something different. Uh, how do we verbalize the God? How do we speak about God? Now the Gemara is speaking about restraint and using certain epithets about God. Gadol, Gibor, Nora, Adir, Yarui, all these attributes. Gemara clearly has a problem with that. But there are a lot of other ways that people speak about God as well. We may speak about God using metaphors. <clears throat> Some people might like doing that. People who have very literal minds would have trouble speaking of God as a lion or as a tiger. But it's not you have it. The moment I think, you know, Tzach is a reasonably good model for uh, what Yadid is about. Uh, we can talk about God by mentioning his actions. Even the Rambam would have no problem with that. You know, God is he who took us out of Egypt and so on and so forth. Now, would there be a problem to negative theology if there would be a problem for the Rambam? Rambam would not say, you can't meaningfully say God took us out of Egypt because then you're describing God, you're describing what God did. And God definitely did do that. The problem of might still apply even to Yitzhak Messiah, even something like that. If somebody were to say, God took us out of Egypt, you know, you say, Dayenu. But somebody might very well say, it's Maybe Dayenu on God's part. But it's not the gain on our part to only mention Yitzhak Musaim and not mention Kirtan Suf. And if God did much more for you than simply taking you out of Egypt, the same problem would apply as well. Every time a person sits down to Seder and they praise God for many, many things involving Yitzhak Musaim, the question could be asked again, but you left something out. 
You talked about Tokseyam Mitzrayim, you didn't talk sufficiently about Sefesh Batim. You did talk about Sefesh Batim, but what about Tosavalayim? You go through the whole 15 Dayenus, and you think, Siamtinu Koishvachi Demare, you think you did as much as you're supposed to do, but what about the Dead of Miriam? What about uh, uh, the uh, the the slob in uh, well, the slob in uh, it may not be such a blessing for them. But, you know what about sichun sichun What the same problem could come up there as well. The problem of using positive language of a God and negative theology doesn't come up. But, the idea that you haven't been adequate, you fell short, and by falling short, you you're, you're, you haven't done your job properly, that you're insulting God, that could still come up. But apparently we don't say that. We use metaphors about God, we use narrative language about God. We have these ways of talking about God that don't seem to fall under the problem Why? How does, that, how does that operate? The third page, the passage from the footnote, people who are unaware of what the Arsenal people, uh, 1906 to 1980, uh, learned in Slovakia, learned in Chavron. Chavron, Rosh Hashivah, Chaim Berlin, and Yerakovish, Brooklyn, New York, author of Pachat Yitzchak and Moadim, it's an important theological work. And in his piece on Pesach, he raises this question, how can we have the Haggadah without colliding with Prince Yemuel Hashem. And he sharpens this by mentioning another Pasuk. Kilim Pereptet, Asaprak David says, I will speak all your praise, which means that David, offhand, David didn't seem to know the Gemara. It's the Rambam, he didn't seem to know the Gemara either. How can David, uh, how do you say, Yumra? Uh, how can he presume to uh, say this? Now, the Hutner's solution, he claims to be getting this from the Gra, although I've not yet located the source in the Gra, and the Hutner's Talmudim did a very good job of indexing Padiyasak in the back, and they skipped. This particular reference also. So, uh, if anybody knows where the Gemara says it, uh, uh, says the point he about speaking about God. It says this problem of speaking about God applies to epithets. It does not apply to metaphors. It does not apply to narrative. When you assign an epithet to God, if it's not an exhaustive epithet, 
then you really are lying, you're falsifying, you're distorting. A metaphor can do work that a mere adjective cannot do. You know, if I say that uh, Churchill was a very stubborn man, we don't have theological problems with Churchill if you have God, but if I say he was a stubborn man, you can ask Santina Kolosh Is it really an adequate description of Churchill? Maybe you should say some other things about it to be adequate. Again, it's not fear of, you don't have the religious problems when you talk about church. So you can say, uh, you really haven't said enough about it. You say that church was a bulldog. You're not vulnerable to the same claim that you have attempted to give an exhaustive description, and the description really isn't exhaustive. Some of the use of the metaphor enables you to bypass that inhibition. How does the metaphor really work? I, it's not a uh, course in philosophy, but philosophers have struggled questioning exactly what a metaphor does. The philosophers would say that every metaphor, meta, people would say metaphors do not have anything to do falsity at all. It's clearly that Churchill is a bulldog doesn't mean anything since you know, he's not an animal, he's a human being, all these problems come up there. So you're not really saying anything that is true or false. You're saying something that somehow does linguistic work, but it doesn't really assert something true or false. The other philosophers would say that every metaphor actually is saying something true or false, and it's always false. It's every metaphor a definition. If you take it literally, it's false. In churches of bulldogs, that's true. Haraya, if it is true that X is a bulldog, it is also true that X is a dog. For somebody saying Churchill is a bulldog would not entail that Churchill is also a dog. That's illogical. So it's a false statement. Again, it's a false statement that happens to be very useful from a certain communicative point of view. I don't want to get involved in that problem right now, just to point out to you that people are puzzled exactly how metaphors do the work that they do. But, and some people would actually take the metaphor and try to unpack it. If the church is a bulldog, they would say that really, really means church was a stubborn man. They would say, so-and-so is a mountain of a man, it means that he's taller and bigger than most people are. And then the metaphor is just a quick way of saying something descriptive. But if Huttner is not saying that, because if he were saying that, then metaphors would be no different from declarative sentences. And saying that God is a lion would be the same thing as saying God's powerful. For whatever being a lion means. You simply paraphrase. If you paraphrase it, then you be vulnerable to accusation. But the Putin is saying, no, 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 metaphors are doing something else. The Putin doesn't get involved in the, the modern analytic problems, what exactly a metaphor does, but it's doing something very different from the language, and therefore it's not vulnerable to the problem of the And 
narrative likewise. When you're telling a story of what God did, it's certainly inadequate. You could say a lot more. But when you're telling a story of what God did, you are not offering a definition of God. And to that extent, you are not vulnerable to the problem of something that goes This is what we're saying. Interesting is, and this is a point that's off the lecture, it's one that uh, I think I, I would like to make it every opportunity I can. Sometimes when you talk about <coughs> biblical poetry and about certain ideas being poetic ideas, there are certain people who say that and their face changes when they say, Zvara Shem is mere poetry. From their point of view, to say that Zvara Shem is high school biology, that, 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 they, that they accept, that's science. But the idea that the Torah should speak poetically, that for them poetry is the lowest thing that they can imagine. And they think they're being thrown when they say this. Whatever it is, they, uh, the Hutner and the Gra are just from Zayar. And they, when they're looking at Torah, they don't view Torah as mere poetry. They think that Torah is true. But they understand that it's a deeper truth than you can get in science. It's a kind of truth that is best communicated in poetic language. It's not a professor of literature saying this. This is uh, the Graal, if you are to believe before them. It's not a professor of philosophy. It's a Irish uh, Shiva who uh, did have university background, but who certainly did not identify himself that way. It's a very important point to understand. So, how religious language works and how what we're doing when we talk about God, when we talk about religious matters. But here I want to take a further step. <coughs> we said that the Prophet does not apply to metaphor in the same way, it does not apply to narrative, which is why we can have the Haggadah, we can have we can do this with an easy conscience. I want to say something further. We do not only communicate through either declarative sentences or metaphors or narrative. We sometimes communicate through physical movement as well. It's not the kind of same communication. Same problems you have about how does a metaphor communicate. You have some of the same problems. A person dances, so you can't really say a person dances. I disagree with that. It's true or false. It's not true or false in quite the same way. 
you know, you listen to music and say, every word that I heard, you know, was true. It's not quite as simple. But there are modes of communication that involve actions. In our religious practice, there are not too many of those. Our davening, our religious activity, our kamatoda, it's pretty much words. And that's why we tend to ignore this question of physical activity. And some years ago, a uh, scholar named Uri Erlich wrote a book called Kolatz Mokai Tomarna about the nonverbal components of Sila, Shtachavaya, knee bending, and all all these matters, which is a reminder that this is part of what we're doing. And, you know, bending your knees is as much a way of expressing submission to God as, as uh, making a, a verbal confession. But again, it doesn't play that large a role in our lives today. Uh, where did it play a larger role, historically? You know, there is a lot more shtachavaya, and that's shtachavaya. There are verbal actions like shchita, hazah, calling walking around with uh, platters of meat, and that's just part of what's Hashem. The same way that a verbal action, verbal gesture would be part of Hashem. And we sometimes Forget the fact that in this respect of it, it's a very different world than the world that we exist in. Uh, you're going to ask me, uh, you know, how do you know this? You never went to the internet. There's a citizen of A, and you said that he was Gilgal, they were calling him, they did this, and they did that. But, uh, uh, first, I'm not a Cohen. Secondly, I uh, sent away and I. Uh, do things. Sent my minute to to be a Gilgal. Well, I said, how do I know this? So he said, well, I have good imagination, which I do claim to have. Uh, or I could go further. I can say that uh, I have proof. That's Svara. That's proof. Uh, anybody familiar with a little book called The Letter of Aristeas? You get it, Aristeas. You find it in these collections of apocryphal epigrapha. You have the Kahanas, Farim you have it there, reading Hebrew. It's a letter written by uh, people in the Alexandrian Jewish community uh, who did whatever they did there. It's a source of a translation totally to Greek, which doesn't concern me right now. But one of the things that's described in Yigaratavistas group of Alexandrian Jews went to Yerushalayim. Uh, they were spectators at the Avodah Beit HaMikdash. And the thing they report that shocked them was in Beit HaMikdash it's really actions rather than words. They're these Kohenim walking around in silence doing what they're doing. Now what the Levim were doing you know, it's, it's a side thing. But the fact is that if you looked at the Avoda, you watched what was going on, you came to the Tamikashinim Kip, and you saw the Kongadal, so the points in the end of the day when Kongadal lane, the points were his Mitvada, but by and large, 
you were watching actions. And people were talking about what it meant to be in Yerushalayim and in Kippetzius Galgan, or to be in Yerushalayim on other occasions, to be in the Bitmikdash, they were referring to these tourists are very impressed by the actions. You communicate with God, and you communicate about God not only through the words, but also by taking a knife, by strengthening blood, doing all these things. So the physical mode of communication played a very important role as much as For us today, not so. Now let me suggest the following. In a community where words and rational expressions of words is very important in religious description, talking about God, anxiety about the inadequacy of words is going to be very important. If something is very important and you, and you know that it's not really adequate, you know there's an element of falsification involved, then you're going to think a great deal about that limitation. If you have nothing in the house that is really worth very much, you are not going to develop an obsessive concern about not having locked the door. If there are no books in my bag, I don't think I would worry too much whether I left the bag here or took the book with the, the bag with me. But there are books there. It's important. The anxiety depends upon the feeling that everything really depends upon this. When we say that pshat, according to Ramban, that pshat in the past does not have to do with this idea of silence being the best way of speaking. And then when we say according to Gemara, meaning at the level of Drash, it does mean that. Gemara does quote that possible level of Drash. And we accept both levels being legitimate. Pshat is what the Pasuk really meant to the people who first spoke it. And Drash is some level that may not be on the surface in the same way, but a level that is hidden away there. It may not be what the original speaker and the original audience was preoccupied with. Then he very well said, with Manshvetim Dash Kayam, the Ramban would hold, the means waiting for God is important. Time of Gemara, there the Drash comes into its own. There the Pshat is silenced, and the Drash becomes the major focus. Because there we do have that anxiety. When we say the word it does not merely mean that waiting for God is praise, as Ramban interprets it. There will also be that additional anxiety. How can we speak about God? Let me explain why the drash of the Pasuk is what it is, 
And the Pshat Kornit Ramban is what it is. Kornit Rashi, the Pshat and Rashi is the same. So Kornit Rashi, we don't have to do all this heavy lifting. We don't we have much briefer discussion today. Mm-hmm. Come back to all the Pesukim we talked about. Norati Loto Sefela Machol Ketash Ramban. This is Rambam fetching the Pasuk, and none of the other Rishonim go that way, so we don't have to worry about that. The Gemara took it one way, and Rashi took it that way, and we understand very well that Ramban did not take it that way. What about Miyamalel Burot Hashem Yashmiyah Koltiyamatel? which certainly supports the Rashi Rambam school. And the Ramban, you know, didn't seem to have an alternative way of looking at it. Well, where does that Pusk appear in Tillam? Perkuflav. Perkuflav is one of the documents in Tillam that goes through Jewish history. Several such documents. You want to study Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and you want to see it. What's the earliest source outside of the Torah that talks about Yitzhak Mitzrayim? So, say, comments of Yitzhak Yeshua, there are a few comments of Yerushalayim. And I was saying, tell him, there's certain reason to tell him that review. Even the Haggadah, we have Pasuk, Yishalachim, Acharonapov, Rabazam, Yisadam, Yishalachim, Ocherayim. And that's a Pasuk from Tilamayim Chet. Yeah, several mismoding that uh, you capitulate Sikhshmaltin that way, comment in Sikhshmaltin. And Mizmur Kufab is one. <coughs> However, again, these other reviews of Jewish history in Tillim, they start from Yitzhak uh, Mitzrayim, they go up to wherever they go to. The uh, Hallel, starts with creation, it ends with the entry in Israel. Mizraim Chet begins, goes through Mitzrayim, and it ends in the period of Shoftim. Mizma Kuvav We have a history of sin, which comes up in some of those this morning as well. Our forefathers in Egypt didn't properly respond to God's acts on their behalf, and so on and so forth. Skip to Paschmem Gimel. Pe'amim rabau ketzileim v'heimram yamru ba'atzatam v'yamoku ba'avonam v'yarbatsav lahem v'shomol ketrinatam v'yizkor lahem v'yito v'yimachem kerov chasadav v'yitenu tam l'rachamim v'fnei kol shoveihem v'shiyeinu Hashem alokeinu v'kabtsein managuyim 
נולדות שם כל שחר, משתבח בקילות אחד. Save us and gather us in from nations. נולדות שם כל שחר, and then we will be able to thank you and we'll be able to take pride in our שבח. This מזמור כוכבב, which is let off to the פסק מימלו ברות השם ישמר כל תפילתו, This pasuk is part of an unusual pedicantillum, a pedicantillum which is written from the perspective of Jews living in Golots. <coughs> If the thesis I developed in the last few minutes is correct, it's exactly what we would expect. When the Beit HaMikdash exists, the verbal communication, the, the, the declarative statements, the, the praise of God and so forth, the verbal praise is of limited importance in the entire picture of man's Avodot Hashem. Limited patience. You don't have the same anxiety about it. And therefore, none of the others express that anxiety. None of them apologize in advance for saying, how can we speak about God? According to Rashi, again, Samachet does, but according to Ramban, it doesn't. You don't have that apology. How can we speak about God? Ibala, Mizmar, every other Mizmar is totally unselfconscious about it. Totally innocent. unintimidated by the concerns that the Rambam raises. In this Mizmar, because this Mizmar is being written from the perspective of Galut, where the only mode of praising God is through tefillah and recounting God's acts and so forth, for that reason, in Mizmar Kufav, you begin with that kind of insight. We begin saying what we're doing is really inadequate. And when you bring us back to Israel and gather us in from all the nations, then Laudot Hashem Kol Shechos for that. Okay, we've gone a, uh, a long uh, journey in the past hour. We started with what seemed to be a very localized machloket, but the meaning of two words in Shirtayam. And a kind of nondescript machloket where, you know, figures, what he's showing them have to do for a living, or Rashi says one thing, the Bible says something else. And they know that his Bible teacher's busy, so they, uh, you know, Pasuk isn't totally clear, so you say one thing, I say another thing. Moving out from there, we saw that there is a, the machloket is not simply a grammatical machloket, the meaning of words, it really goes on and deals with a philosophical concept as well. We then, by reading the Ramban carefully, and by looking at the Gemara carefully, we were able to clarify what the Ramban's relationship to Gemara really is, meaning the idea of the Gemara for the Ramban, being trash and 
his having the room to develop shot from a different direction without contradicting the drash at the level of drash. We then, moving out from here, also had a very broad consideration of how religious language operates in general and why certain types of religious language have more problems than other types do and, and that Dafka mere poetry can really can do more in leading us to religious truth than uh, more declarative types of statements. And again, if I'm correct at the end, everything I said in the first 45 minutes could be perfectly true when you still don't agree with my last finish. If you don't agree with my last finish, uh, I may feel personally hurt. Because this is really what I contributed, but uh, it does not invalidate the rest of the, of the, uh, the shir. Uh, but at the end, where we try to take note of the fact that in Tillim, sometimes you have that anxiety about religious language, and sometimes you don't, and that it may be correlated to the question of whether the perspective of the Mizmor is necessary, or the perspective of the Mizmor is the people in Golot who are waiting to be ingathered. Uh, something what I said was probably worth are spending the hour together, and hopefully all of it or most of it. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, participation.